0: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, two reporters started a friendly bet over whether they could predict how lawmakers will vote on certain bills. We'll hear about a little-known tool they used and learn how their bet turned out.
1: Plus, we explore a recent surge in new businesses emerging from the pandemic. The only
2: real thing that predicts entrepreneurial opportunity is radical change that happens quickly.
1: And we learn about the history of the ever-popular avocado.
0: That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole.
1: And I'm Henry Zimmerman. The 2021 Colorado legislative session wrapped up on June 8th, later than most years because the pandemic delayed the start. Despite the air of uncertainty at the Capitol, state lawmakers introduced more than 600 bills this year
0: while it may seem that lawmakers vote on these bills along predictable lines, that's not always how it goes. And that prompted a question in the KUNC newsroom. Is it possible to know how your state representative will vote on a bill before it even gets debated?
1: Our first segment today started off as a casual bet between two reporters that sheds light on a little-known tool that can pretty accurately predict such outcomes. Our state capitol reporter Scott Franz and investigative reporter Michael DeJuana put power mapping to the test
3: on five of this year's bills.
4: So, Scott, as journalists, we're always gauging the support and opposition for issues.
3: Michael, what are your methods for doing that? Good
4: old gumshoe reporting, you know, asking people in the know and a bit of experience on reading which way the political winds might be blowing. But I also keep an open mind about things.
3: Mine are similar, but I've also added a new kind of computer data analysis that can predict the fate of a bill. I'm pretty sure I can tell you who will vote for it and against it.
4: And this is where our bet comes into play. Right. Before we get to who was right.
3: Me or you. You
4: mean me or your computer. Let's go to where it all began.
3: It was a hearing of the Senate Agriculture and Natural Resources Committee that you were covering on April 15.
5: At this time, we have a um, witness list of around 40 people. 40?
4: 40. That's Kerry Donovan. She leads the four-member committee, and the bill is titled Ski Area Safety Plans and Accident Reporting.
5: Senator Danielson, please. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, fellow members of the Ag Committee.
3: Jesse Danielson is a committee member and a co-sponsor of the bill.
5: Today, we're going to hear from a lot of families who have been impacted by injury or death on the ski slopes.
3: The bill would require ski resorts to
4: publish public data about all their injuries and fatalities, as well as create safety plans that consumers can review.
3: And that's what got my attention before I started covering the Capitol I was a print reporter in Steamboat Springs. I actually sat next to the police scanner, and quite often I could hear the paramedics talking as they treated injuries on the slopes. But it isn't easy to get detailed information or to learn about the trends.
4: Exactly. Several reporters have tried this over the years. Including you. Back in 2019, I found more than 5,600 emergency room visits in a single year for ski and snowboard incidents. But I was only able to connect a few of the numbers to specific resorts. Those were the falls and other injuries involving chairlifts. And I had to file a Colorado Open Records Act request to get that slice of the information.
5: You shouldn't have to be a journalist with a CORA request and a lot of money to figure out what's going on. As a skier, I can say if there's a simple, straightforward way To collect the data and require the ski resorts to produce safety plans that's public and transparent, we should do so.
3: But there was a lot of pushback from the ski industry to Danielson's bill.
4: For instance, Melanie Mills. uh, She's the president and CEO of the trade association, Colorado Ski Country USA. They represent 22 ski areas.
5: Senate Bill 184 is a terrible solution to a non-existent problem.
4: She argued that a national group representing the industry already tabulates injury and fatality numbers in a comprehensive way once a decade. But This is aggregated data, and it's not the granular resort-specific information that supporters are asking to be made public.
5: The ski industry is interested in careful analysis of data and meaningful scientific conclusions that can be used to improve safety and help educate guests. Not in soundbite pieces of raw data that can be taken out of context, used to sell a particular narrative, scare people— provide voyeuristic information, and tabloidize the topic of ski safety.
3: I'm feeling like this is a really good point to let people know more about our wager.
4: With people discussing their accidents, as well as some experts who testified about how data can make industries more accountable and safer, I thought the bill had a chance of getting out of the committee.
3: But through power mapping, I predicted it would fail. In essence, it measures how likely lawmakers are to support or oppose a bill based on the money they get from groups lobbying on a particular issue.
6: Organizations have been forever kind of looking at who are the players, uh, who are the decision makers.
4: That's the lead designer of the power mapping tool. His name is Greg Schneider.
6: Who is influencing them? Which ones are on our side? Which ones are not on our side? Which ones are potentially persuadable? The practice of power mapping is just kind of putting that in a visual representation.
3: Schneider is the Innovation and Products Director at the Institute on Money and Politics in Helena, Montana. He says there are a couple of key ingredients to power mapping.
4: Obviously, one of them is who is lobbying for or against a bill.
3: And under state law, lobbyists must declare their position, or even if they are just monitoring a bill. And the other ingredient is to plug that information into the power mapping tool.
4: It's worth noting that campaign contributions to Colorado lawmakers aren't that big. There are limits, $200 in the primary and $200 in the general election from a group. That's according to the Secretary of State's office, which oversees elections.
3: Michael, it doesn't sound like a lot, but Schneider says even amounts in this range matter. It's an indicator for those of
6: us looking at the political system that there is uh, some similarity in ideology somewhere between these organizations.
3: And that reveals something at the Capitol people might otherwise miss, like how important the relationships between campaign givers and the lawmakers can be.
4: So I asked you to walk me through this power mapping you did for the ski bill. We first have to sift through the long list of groups lobbying for and against it
3: like the Colorado Association of Realtors, which is opposed.
4: So we hopped onto Zoom and I read the groups to you.
3: And I entered them into the system.
4: Colorado ski country. Colorado ski country as opposed, yeah.
3: Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce. They're opposed? Yep. Wow, they're a big 2.1 million. Oh man, this is gonna knock everyone way over. And we keep going like that. Children's Hospital Colorado is four.
4: Vail Resorts opposed. And finally, that's it. With all the information in, it brings us back to our bet. And to Senator Jesse Danielson, who after hours of debate, finally calls for a vote.
5: Thank you, Madam Chair. I move Senate Bill 184 to the Committee of the Whole. That is a proper motion. Um, Will you please take the roll?
3: Wait, wait, wait. wait. Stop the tape. I want to tell people what my prediction was first.
4: You not only said uh, you could predict the outcome, but you also said you could predict who would vote for and against it.
3: I said it would fail four to one and Danielson would be the only one to vote for it.
5: Senator Corum? No. Senator Fields? No. Senator Sonnenberg? No. Senator Danielson? Yes.
4: You called it exactly,
3: Scott. And there's this big takeaway. Groups opposing the bill had given $5.7 million to campaigns, while supporters came in at just $302,000.
4: So let's be clear, that's not money that went directly to fight or support the bill. And all of it did not go directly to the lawmakers voting on this bill. Remember the limits to giving that we mentioned earlier.
3: Right. It's an overall amount and it's a reflection of power in the form of money given to all lawmakers.
4: But there's this question. Did campaign contributions influence votes on this specific bill? Absolutely not.
5: Not in the slightest.
4: That's two of the senators on the committee who voted no on the bill. Jerry Sonnenberg, an Eastern Plains Republican, and Democrat Kerry Donovan, whose district includes ski resorts,
5: I don't think anyone can deny that the ski industry is a huge
7: driver of our Colorado economy.
3: The power mapping tool shows that Donovan received $1,000 in campaign contributions from ski interests over the years in running for office, including Vail Resorts and Colorado Ski Country USA, and another $400 from the Colorado Association of Realtors.
4: But she told us the contributions didn't affect her vote or any of her other votes during the legislative session.
5: I remember that Vail Resorts gave me a check because I was really proud to have the support of my hometown. But I don't know beyond that if I could tell you who I have and haven't received Um, support of my campaign from.
4: This makes me think about what Greg Schneider was saying earlier. He said donations have been given for a purpose. And as you said, Scott, the tool reminds us how important donations can be to lawmakers in a general sense.
3: So the purpose, according to lawmakers we spoke to, is that organizations use money to say they support a candidate. Here's Jerry Sonnenberg.
2: I think uh, when when people are writing campaign checks, they write checks to people that may have a similar philosophy of theirs.
4: Records show that Sonnenberg received $1,600 from Vail Resorts in Colorado Ski Country, USA, and another $4,100 from the Colorado Association of Realtors in his time running for office.
2: So that they uh, would anticipate that if something came up, because you can imagine four years ago or whenever it was, when they were writing checks, they didn't know this bill was coming.
3: And to that point, there's another interesting detail we found. Senator Jesse Danielson also received money from the Colorado Association of Realtors, $1,100. And they were opposing the ski safety bill that she was trying to get passed.
4: So we asked her the same questions. Do campaign contributions influence her decisions on specific pieces of legislation?
5: They wanted to fund my election campaign. And then on this measure, they opposed my bill. And that's not uncommon. And obviously, I... I stood for my values.
4: So a big looming question is, in what light do we look at this power mapping? Because these senators are telling us campaign contributions don't predict what they will support.
3: And that's exactly what Greg Schneider, the power mapping co-designer, expected would happen. I think
6: most of them bristle pretty heavily at the concept that money influences their decision making.
4: Corporations donate, he says, because they believe they'll have some kind of sway in what becomes law and what doesn't. He also said that power mapping works best when it looks at the big picture. We put that to the test with other bills in the state legislature.
3: Including one letting school boards and cities withhold information about the finalists they are considering for their top jobs and one on big building efficiency.
4: And two from 2019, the so-called red flag gun control bill and the fight over oil and gas local control. In all, we
3: mapped five bills. And it correctly predicted the outcome of four of them. It didn't work on the oil and gas bill.
4: There were many amendments to that bill, and it changed so significantly that it was difficult to track the support and opposition over time. Schneider told us that there are going to be cases where the power map doesn't predict what will happen.
3: But he did reference a couple of studies that say, in general, this kind of tool is predictive, not only in Colorado, but in state houses across the country. And when it comes to lawmakers...
6: I do think there is generally the ability to draw some correlation between the types of money that you give and the types of decisions that you make.
3: So, Scott, the
4: next time a bill I'm watching comes up, it might be worth taking a little time to power map it.
3: I think so, and I'm willing to bet that it will predict the outcome. I'm Scott Franz at the State Capitol.
4: And I'm Michael DeOanna.
0: you are listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC.
1: This summer, as the state continues to emerge from the pandemic, many experts are optimistic about Colorado's economic recovery in the coming year. Although the state isn't back to full employment yet, it does appear that folks are eager to get out and spend money. But even beginning last summer, before any COVID-19 vaccines had been rolled out, a lot of Coloradans decided to start new businesses. KUNC's Ray Solomon spoke with some of these pandemic entrepreneurs.
8: Look at your guy! It's a chilly morning at the City Park Farmers Market in Denver, and a steady stream of people are visiting Annabelle Shin's booth. I'm the owner. I also
2: call myself a love producer of Preserve. We make uh, healthy frozen pet trees.
8: What do you have here? I see blueberries, spinach, squash. We're a
2: Whole Foods-based company for pets.
8: So what's on the table, it represents the ingredients that we use in our treats. Her kiosk has a gourmet feel to it. It's designed like a boutique, right down to the cute pug on the company logo. And nothing about her business screams pandemic but. I started the
2: business officially. I registered with the state in mid-March 2020.
8: This was a couple of weeks after the pandemic led to furloughs at her day job and it turns out this farmer's market is full of similar stories.
2: I sold my first kombucha uh, in June, so almost a year. So I started my business in July of last year, 2020.
1: We both
4: lost our jobs in the restaurant industry.
8: In March, I want to say, Of of this year, of 2021. Yeah. In fact, entrepreneurship has been growing statewide. Secretary of State Jenna Griswold recently reported an increase of nearly 20% in new businesses registering with the state since the start of the pandemic. New
5: entity filings hit a new record in Colorado showing that Colorado entrepreneurs, even in the midst of the recession, are still at it. Entrepreneurship remains strong.
8: This seems to fly in the face of the more common narrative of businesses struggling or going under. So what gives?
2: The only real that predicts entrepreneurial opportunity is radical change that happens quickly.
8: Jeff York is a research director at the Deming Center for Entrepreneurship at CU Boulder's Leeds School of Business.
2: In the wake of, of natural disasters, for example, you'll see an uptick in entrepreneurship.
8: Meaning what might seem far out in normal times can be practical when life is upended. And he says community engagement often drives people into disaster entrepreneurship.
2: They try to figure out ways, new opportunities to both create you know, for-profit ventures, but also to try to solve some of the problems they see happening around
8: them. Federal stimulus money may have helped people take the risk, and there's also just the sheer necessity of getting by.
4: People who didn't have jobs, lost their jobs or furloughed or whatever,
1: they were pushed into entrepreneurship because they didn't have any other opportunities
8: don filminey is an agriculture economics professor at colorado state university she describes entrepreneurship as a push pull dynamic
1: pull is that you see a really clever idea no one's acting on that there definitely was a pull here and it was the shift to online
4: we saw billions of dollars shift from people eating out to eating at home and so people were look were spending more money on more interesting quality things and Local, regional, entrepreneurial.
8: Now, any business expert will tell you that the vast majority of new ventures fail within the first few years. But this pandemic year has been exceptional in countless ways. And Jeff York says that could translate to better prospects for fledgling businesses. One, you're going to be forced to start small. Starting small is always his number one piece of advice. And he says those looking to create a customer base from scratch might find they have an edge this year, too. People
2: had to change their behavior during the pandemic. And once people start to change their behavior about some things, they tend to psychologically be more willing to change their behavior about other things.
8: Like sharing locally produced frozen treats with a favorite animal pal. What breed is it? Uh, She's a mini blue pit. Back at the farmer's market, Annabelle Shin is counting on just that. She's invested about $10,000 into her company more than a year after getting started. She sells her frozen pet treats locally at farmer's markets and at a handful of retail stores in Denver.
2: Right now, I mean, I've gone beyond breaking even. I am been making a profit, so that's good but it's not enough for me and all the expenses in my personal life, so I will always be, I'll take whatever job that I can in order
8: to support this venture. Shin is now looking for a permanent commercial kitchen where she can manufacture her treats to keep up with demand. And she says she may have to hire someone this summer to help with production, and to hand out treats at the farmer's market. Ray Solomon, KUNC. Thank
2: you, I hope you guys love it. Yeah, I really appreciate it, thank not you. Not at all, bye.
0: Avocados are a staple food item found on many kitchen counters these days. Perhaps guacamole is one of those must-haves at your 4th of July get-together. But you may not realize that avocados weren't always this easy to find. We're going to dive into the history of this dark green, oddly textured fruit with Jeff Miller. He's an associate professor in the Colorado State University Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition. He's also the author of the book Avocado, a Global History. Jeff, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you for having me. I feel like most people have tasted avocado, but if you were to describe an avocado to someone who's never seen one, eaten one, even heard of one before, what would you say?
7: Boy, that would be a tough one because one of the really unique things about an avocado is that that is not a texture that most of us would put right at the top of our flavor preference list, our texture preference list. So (laughs) It's kind of soft. It's kind of mushy. It's kind of gluey you know, it's kind of like an oyster in the sense that it's really kind of a brave person to to take a bite of one.
0: Avocados were first brought to the United States in 1833. Tell us about the initial reaction to the fruit and how avocados came to be grown here.
7: Avocados were first brought to the U.S. in Florida by Dr. Henry Perrine, and they were pretty well received. And there weren't a lot of people in Florida in those days. You have to understand that a lot of people living in Florida as a result of the invention of air conditioning. Before that, it, and especially in the 1830s, there were very few Europeans living in Florida. But they did well, and they were well accepted. And had he not been killed in a raid on his island, he might have lived to spread the, the gospel of them a little further. But they did well on his little island, but he didn't really have a chance to spread the word. And nobody else really tried it again for you know another 60 years.
0: Well, early on, avocados were mostly popular in California, right? And they began to grow in popularity when California cuisine gained popularity.
7: Right. For a long time, it was definitely a culinary item that was only from Mexico and was only in the United States, really only eaten in Southern California. And it really doesn't even start to take off until the silent movie era and Los Angeles starts to grow as a place to make movies and to grow fruit. But it's still somewhat limited into that area until uh, the late 1960s and early 1970s with the growth of what we think of as California cuisine. And the people who really put them on the map are people like Jonathan Waxman and uh, Alice Waters at Chez Panisse in Berkeley. And They were consciously creating a cuisine that was based in this amazing cornucopia that's California. And it just seemed like, oh, this is this thing that is uniquely Californian, and so we're going to feature this in our cuisine. And and from there, it it kind of started to take off.
0: How did avocados get to be as popular as they are right now?
7: I think you have to hand it almost single-handedly to the growth in Tex-Mex-style cuisine in America. You know, for a long time, that was not popular. It was very much limited to the Southwest and to Texas. And at some point in the 1970s, as more hispanic people moved around latinx people moved around the united states they brought this cuisine with them and guacamole was the thing that really put avocados over the top and as avocados and guacamole got more popular uh, you know at one point they had the first ad for avocados on the super bowl and boy it was just the sky was the limit after that
0: Let's say more about the ecological impact of growing avocados. I mean, what are the water needs of an avocado plant?
7: The average avocado you buy at the grocery store will have uh, taken about a bathtub full of water to grow. We always use the almond as some kind of poster child for extravagant water use in agriculture, but the avocado is not necessarily a lot better citizen itself. There are some places where it gets enough natural rainfall that that can happen, and Michoacan's one of those places. Dominican Republic, which grows amazing amount of avocados same way, Sub-Saharan Africa, the same way. But also a lot of the places where they grow it, like Chile and Australia and Southern California and Israel and places, Spain, places like that, they use a tremendous amount of water that's diverted from other purposes.
0: Why do you think it's important to approach everyday foods like the avocado with the knowledge of the history and the ecology of it, the way that you present in your book?
7: I think if we understand the cultural importance of foods, it helps us appreciate other people and other cultures around the world. And we can kind of get a sense of, well, this is important in their culture and understand why it's important. And and I also just think, you know, if we think about the sensitivities that go with eating anything, I'm not a vegetarian, you know, I'm not don't think that people should stop eating everything altogether, but if we approach things with the knowledge of how we can make selections carefully and respectfully and to utilize products totally so that we don't waste, all those things are an important way to approach our diet. I'm huge on, you know, you should, we should eat snout to tail on animals. We should utilize everything that comes out of the fields. There's so much waste in the, in the process that it just gives us a respect for the product, for the people that produce it, that the cultures that it comes from. And I think being a conscious eater is good. Knowledge, you know, sometimes comes with responsibility.
0: Jeff Miller is an associate professor in the Colorado State University Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition, and the author of the new book, Avocado, A Global History. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us.
7: Thank you so much for having me.
1: That's our show for today. On the next Colorado Edition, we hear about the return of a beloved silent film festival in person, complete with a live orchestra. I'm Henry Zimmerman.
0: And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs.
1: Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.